This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 138 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Milos Forman's 1975 film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay, so this is this is a massive film. It's in the uh, AFI Top 100 Films of All Time. It's in the National Film Registry. It's been seen yep. as significant to the government, and, and uh, they've seen, it, seen fit to uh, preserve it, so... What did you think about this movie on your viewing? Uh, how did it affect you after, after after having read the book? It was a enlightening movie because it, it's one of those times where I watch something and it feels like pieces are falling into place. Um, this is a this is a piece of Jack Nicholson's career that seems super important for like everything else that he did after this, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so many of this cast uh, I recognized from things. I had to look them up and go, where was that from? Who was he from? And you know. This movie uh, is is iconic, obviously, and I feel like uh, I don't know how I missed it up until this point, um, but I'm really glad I watched it. I actually really enjoyed this movie, um, and I think reading the book added a lot of extra depth and um, allowed me to explore, I think, the messaging behind the film in ways that I might have been, it might have otherwise flown by me in a first viewing. Mm-hmm. It seems like the kind of movie that if I had watched several times, I might have started picking up on more of these like hidden meanings, but... Having read the book, I think primed me for it, so I, I was picking up on everything they were laying down. Uh, the flip side to that is is that some of the surprise I think was lessened because I knew what was going to happen in a lot of ways. And, and, and you know, this is mostly a very faithful adaptation, um, and so because of that, you know, you lose a little bit of that surprise, you lose a little bit of that shock that you would have otherwise got. Oh, oops, pun intended, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it was it was enjoyable, and it's one of those things where, like, I wish I could watch it both ways, kind of. I kind of wish I could watch it without having read the book first, but I also wouldn't give up the experience of having read the book first, too, because that was, that was alternate. Um, so, I, I guess, uh, you know, our podcast gives us a unique perspective on it um, that hopefully people come here to, to see, like, how that affected our viewing, and, and that's what, definitely what happened here. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I just right away want to get your perspective on, on, do you think it improved? Because for myself, I'll just, I'll just kind of lead the witness a little bit. I'm so much more sympathetic towards a lot of the characters because of the fact that I'm not so distracted by some of the stuff that I was distracted by in the book. Right. Um, And, you know, I'm not saying these characters aren't gray and I'm not saying these characters are perfect, but there's some stuff that was just like, like specifically we talked about at, at length in our second book episode, how we felt that. Uh, a lot of masculinity was linked to uh, freedom and sort of seeing women in a certain light and sort of being the demons of the story and, you know, uh, and repeatedly so, not just from one character and not just one time. Uh, it just seemed to be a sort of a point that, that the author Ken Kesey was trying to make. And, you know, I think getting rid of that baggage, because these characters don't, you know, I don't think that they're trying to make the same uh, masculinity point. I was much much more engaged with sort of like what McMurphy was up to and like how he was able to actually change these people's lives for the better. And, you know, he does some despicable things, but it's like, um, it's not the despicable things that I didn't like in the book. It was just like the overall messaging that I feel like I was getting. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying, man. And, uh, I think it would be silly for us to put it off to the very end. Like we usually do, um, as far as like weighing whether or not we liked the film or the book better, which is what we usually do to end a project, I think it's pretty obvious. I, I agree with you. I liked this film better than the book. Um, I think it 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 got rid of a lot of those problems, and in in so doing, it was able to give a clarity to the message that I enjoyed. This this story, uh, and as presented in the movie, is is more about. I was thinking about this. It was more about like. You know how there's, you're always going to encounter people in your life, especially people of authority, who are going to claim to have your best interests in mind, and they're going to be doing things. It's like this is this is for your own good, this is for your own protection, and sometimes that's okay because it could be true. But there are going to be times where it's not true, and there are going to be times where it is actually and for their own gain or their own good, and they actually don't care about you. 
And uh, I think that's what this story is ultimately about, because Nurse Ratched is the manifestation of that sort of idea and that sort of uh, oppression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way McMurphy rallies all the people in the uh, asylum against her and against the system um, was able to be a lot more about freedom and um, resisting and, and like kind of making your own decisions and living life to the fullest and not letting society put you in a box. And all of that was less complicated to me because, like you said, it wasn't being conflated with masculinity in a way that was making me uncomfortable. So um, just that alone, I think, makes this makes this film the superior version um, with all the usual caveats of I completely grant the original uh, author plenty of um, credit for coming up with these ideas, coming up with these characters. And I'm also not, not trying to say that it wasn't in the book at all. I think it was there and it could just be some of our own personal hangups about it. The, the sort of look at authority was absolutely there in the book. This idea of yeah. like the, the allegory that he's drawing to maybe the government and sort of, you know, the different classes within, within this system of society that we've set up and how, you know, how like authorities can, can deem who, you know, is in this, in this case insane and who is in, and that, that sort of thing. And what, what, you know, what questions that's bringing up. But, um, so, I mean, that's kind of our general thoughts a little bit there. I I know we do have some yeah. feedback we want to address from last week. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to bring that up. Uh, we, we got a comment from Eric G, uh, one of our patrons, uh, one of the people who re- requested this project in the first place, his reaction to our last episode, I thought was, was pretty intriguing, and I wanted to bring it up because I don't think we quite gave voice to this perspective, and I suspect there are other fans of this film and fans of this book who might share this perspective. So I wanted to go ahead and put it out there, and we can kind of weigh in on it. So here's a selection of his comment. I might have brought my own bias to it when I read it, but what I recall is that the baggage you're talking about is what I found interesting about the book. Not because I agreed with the blatant, violent misogyny, didn't, don't, but because I interpreted it as intentionally abhorrent that McMurphy was supposed to be just as bad as Ratched, not a hero. I read the book as a debate between two extremes in modern American culture, repression and puritanism on one side and violent sexualized 50s era masculine hedonism on the other. I read the titular phrase as being about rejecting both extremes. McMurphy was the bird that flew east, Ratched the one that flew west, and America clumsily metaphored as Native American uh, that's lost his voice, needing to opt for a third way. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. He also later compares it a little bit to uh, American Psycho, which was another project we covered where where clearly the main character was not supposed to be likable. You know what I mean? Like it was it was made for a point. And mm-hmm. so, you know, th- I like this point and I, and I think there's certain validity to it for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I in terms of just the character of McMurphy, I don't think in any version of the story we're supposed to sort of see him as a as a role model necessarily. I do think that there are things that he represents, like he is supposed to represent this freedom and speaking your truth and and that, all that sort of thing. Um, but at the end of the day, there are things that that make him a great character for sure. Um, and specifically in the book, I agree. Like he he kind of. Is, you know, less so in the movie, more in the book. He seems a lot more like sort of that Patrick Bateman character where he represents something that's supposed to like be a metaphor for everything that's going on. And he's not necessarily, not necessarily meant to be this main character that we, we emulate. He so frequently behaves with misogyny as his like underlying motiva- motivator um, or, or maybe even like a, a co-motivator for the things that he's doing that... Um, him as an example and a role model for many of the inmates becomes muddied. I, I, I think you can't watch this movie or wa- read this book and not see that he is the role model for everybody in the asylum, right? Because this is all about a man coming in and inspiring other men to take back their freedom and to take back their personal, you know, love of life and to uh, enjoy themselves and not put themselves in a box. And it's all about his sacrifice and his inspiration. Um, and that character is at its most prominent with with Bromden, this Native American, who is witnessing and um, is ultimately the one who escapes at the end and is freed by what he's gone through. So, you know, I, I agree that I think this is, this is the message, but um, I don't think it changes my issue with... 
um, this character still seeming like someone that we are meant to emulate because I don't think you can read this and say that Nurse Ratched and Nurse and uh, McMurphy are both presented in, in, in equally fairly with their their positions. Like, no, one's a villain and one's a hero, quite obviously, um, to me at least. So I, I guess it doesn't really change the way I feel about it, um, but I, I am open to that concept and I'm open to this reading of it. Um, and you know, I, I, I love to get the feedback. I, I definitely welcome anybody to write in when they have an alternate take, because, um, it can help me sometimes to, to view something, um, from a different light. And it definitely did here. McMurphy representing one side and, and nurse ratchet representing the other and, and America needing to, to, to take some other path. Um, I like that reading of it. I just don't know that that's what I got from it. Um, necessarily, right. like, like I said, but I do really, right. Think because he came, he because Bromden seems to take. McMurphy's path, right? Like, I don't think he's taking a third path, really. I, I guess he doesn't die, but he seems like he's a full-on McMurphy disciple at the end, and that's why he that's why he leaves. So, I, I don't know that there's this third path, but regardless, uh, let's move on and talk about this film. Um, things are different in the film, and so I'm excited to get into it. I know this is a big one uh, that, that uh, much like Silence of the Lambs, we talked about, one of the few films to, like, win all these major awards and um, is iconic in many of these actors' careers. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it just is one of those films, right? It's one, of the, it's one of the ones that people look to as like being on a Mount Rushmore, maybe even. And, and something, something I was reading is that President Barack Obama has said that this is his favorite film. Really? Wow. Favorite film, yeah. I found that to be surprising, and yet still, like, I can kind of see it, right? I like, I've, and, right. you know, it's, it's also interesting to think of someone who was the president as seeing society being overbearing and sort of, like, uh, dictating who who's, you know, who's one way and who's another way. It's just, it, you know, I mean, I think that's a good perspective to have as a leader, if, if this is, yeah. like, sort of the person in ultimate power, real like, understands, um, you know, how power can corrupt, that kind of thing. Well, I was thinking about how, you know, these characters represent sort of the soul of America, if you can forgive me. Um, and in a lot of ways, this feels like an Amer like a quintessentially American film. And it's yes. about that need to be free and um, and, you know, for better, or for worse, uh, you know, that spirit is what drove our ancestors and what still drives a lot of American politics as people you know, weighing against like security versus freedom, you know, this, the eternal bit debate or, or, or any number of things versus freedom. Mm -hmm. And in our society, freedom tends to win out, um, or a lot of people want it to. Um, so this movie I think is, is sort of a big proponent of freedom should win out. Um, I don't know if I always agree with that, but it's definitely a side with that is worth being voiced. And I, I, I feel it and I feel the message behind it and I agree with it in, in you know, most, in most ways. Um, and then, you know, also beyond that, I think anytime you can uh, talk more about issues with mental health and the way that we're treating people who are different, um, I think is, is valuable too, because there's a lot of humanizing of, of people that we would otherwise, um, or some people would otherwise view is is dangerous or strange um and this movie makes us like them and, right. and i thought that was really effective yeah and like credit where credit to ken kesey's novel i think was raising awareness for this stuff as well you know like Absolutely. sort of drawing attention to it um but i do want to specifically come back around to that for the movie after we talk a little about a little bit about milos foreman um okay. because it's it's you know i agree with you i think this movie is quintessentially american in in nature but mm -hmm. th there's some interesting stuff here Milos Forman was born Jan Tomas Forman in Kozlov, Czechoslovakia. During World War II, his parents were taken away by the Nazis after being accused of participating in the underground resistance. His father died in Buchenwald and his mother died in Auschwitz, and Milos became an orphan early Jeez. on. He studied screenwriting at the Prague Film Academy. In his Czechoslovakian films, Black Peter in 1964, Loves of a Blonde in 1965, and The Fireman's Ball, in 1967, he created his own style of comedy. During the invasion of his country by the troops of Warsaw Pact in the summer of 1968 to stop the Prague Spring, he left Europe for the United States. In spite of difficulties, he filmed Taking Off in 1971 there and achieved his fame later with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, adapted from the novel of Ken Kesey, which won five Oscars, including one for direction. Other important films of Milos Forman were the musical Hair in 1979 and his biography of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, 
Amadeus in 1984, which won oh. eight Oscars. Okay, yeah, I mean that that's incredible. What a, what a story. Um, you know, an immigrant too, which I think mm-hmm. is I think is an essential American uh, identity. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Our our country was founded on immigrants, so I think it absolutely makes sense that someone would come here. And and I think often immigrants, um, yeah, speaking painting with a broad brush, but. Many, I think, have an appreciation for the freedom of America even stronger than a lot of people who are born here because they know what it's like to not have it right. elsewhere. And, you know, that's what seems like is true for his story. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's a huge component of this story, right? Mm-hmm. Of this story is freedom. And so there's a quote from from Milos Foreman where he says, when I was asked to direct One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, my friends warned me not to go anywhere near it. The story is so American, they argued, that I, an immigrant fresh off the boat, could not do it justice. They were surprised when I explained why I wanted to make the film. To me, it was not just literature, but real life. The life I lived in Czechoslovakia from birth in 1932 until 1968. The Communist Party was my nurse ratchet, telling me what I could and could not do, what I was or was not allowed to say, where I was and was not allowed to go, even who I was and was not. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And he came from one extreme to another, you know, and and so often these days I I think about how it's so important to find middle ground between between extremes. And, uh, you know, I think this this movie shows the dangers of being overly controlled and overly put into boxes and uh, manipulated and suppressed. and, you know, no one is arguing for that, I think, you know, because that's it's quite obviously terrible. So, yeah, that's that's Milos Forman. I, I mean, he's yeah. a prolific filmmaker, went on to make some, some like movies that are in the Criterion Collection, movies that are in the Library of Congress. Amadeus, I think, as well as One Flew Over the yeah. Cuckoo's Nest are in the Library of Congress. Um, I've never registry. seen Amadeus, but I, I am aware of it. Have, yeah. have you seen it? Fanta- yeah, fantastic. Long movie, but very, very good. Yeah, another one of those movies you just haven't seen. I think I think this um, this film in particular, I think Milos was smart about how he approached it. I think he understood that it wasn't going to be flashy cinematography, like sort of with all kinds of effects and things like that that were going to sell this movie. It was going to be performances, and so my favorite scenes in these in this movie are the scenes that he lets the actors go through. Like there are shots of when Jack Nicholson. My one of my favorite shots is when Jack Nicholson is his McMurphy character. It has like um, Billy and Candy have gone off together, and it's at the very end of the film where he's sort of yeah. looking around and looking at the window, and you see him go from sort of like I got to get out of here to understanding the situation to accept. And I think we actually see him accept it. We've talked we talked about it in our book two episode, but sort of did he or did he not know that like sort of falling asleep and staying there meant that he was going to be a martyr and like end up the way he did. I agree. I think that's one of the, one of the times where I felt like covering it the way we did reading the book, like we did enabled me to appreciate that moment as it happened. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think I would have otherwise been left wondering, Oh, what was that about? You know, what was that look? It was kind of, it was subtle and it you could be forgiven thinking that he just fell asleep and accidentally got caught um and and he kind of did but he also i agree i think he kind of let himself fall asleep there's a smirk in there yeah yeah so uh and, and that's only a perspective i think i would have would have gotten if i had read the book first right and that decision by by Milos Forman to have it it was like i don't know how long it was but it had to be over a minute of just like slowly pushing in on on jack nicholson's mcmurphy character and just the way that he was yeah going through his process thinking it through and we we were you know there's no narration which was something we would have got in the book i feel like or could have you know not in this scene we didn't but sort of um i was just mentioned uh narration because we didn't really get any in the movie whereas it was such a big component of the book Right. Um, and so just like having that moment, letting the audience actually under- try to figure it out for themselves and understand the thought process. I think that's just powerful directing. And I think that's that's believing in your actors. Well, and I was struck by the uh, the sound because everything kind of falls away and we hear the like the sound of the night and we hear a train, I think, going by. You hear this, you know, loud train noise. And I thought he was letting the sound um, outside the hospital sort of pull to McMurphy and also represent freedom. And he knows it's right outside that window if he wants to go to it. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's clever, it's clever storytelling. I'm really glad we don't have voiceover. I thought it was funny. We read a quote somewhere from Ken Kesey saying that he really felt like Bromden should have been the, the main character in this story. And I assume that he means that we should have gotten more of his observations. And, uh, I, I just don't think that's accurate. So I think it's always worth, uh, worth noting that occasionally, you know, the, the, the writer might not know what's best for the film because I think this film works better without voiceover. Yeah. They might be too close. Yeah, exactly. And it's a different medium. Right. Yeah. Sometimes the writer can just, can just be too close to it and, and, you know, need another perspective. And, and that's not to say that he doesn't understand his story, but when it, you know, changes mediums, it does become a different story. Yeah. Some, a, a well, speaking of, of that, we just, we just covered the last man on earth, uh, for our bonus episode this month for our patrons. And, uh, there's lots of voiceover in that film so much so that it gets really obnoxious, uh, like just narrating things that the character's doing on the screen and, uh, I just, yeah, I'm really glad that this film, no voiceover. That was a refreshing yep. change. <laughs> well, and I mean, it, it's a bold change, too, because like in the source material, we have Bromden narrating. And I think yeah. that it's something specific that struck me almost right away because we read the book and, you know, that give, getting that perspective from the book is that I felt like the, the institution in the book felt more ominous right away because we're getting, I think we're getting the internal internal thoughts of a character who's been there for a long time and you know sort of really early on we're getting we're, we know that he's seeing things uh it just seems ominous like it seems overbearing whereas in the film i i i as the audience member as the viewer felt like jack nicholson's character i didn't understand the gravity of the situation until he did in the movie whereas i think we were sort of like keyed into it as readers in the book a little earlier on which led to it feeling more ominous. And that was something that, that really kind of changed the tone of the, the early... I think I was able to have much more fun when the characters were having fun and bonding together early on uh, before before um, McMurphy really understood the stakes. Yeah, I agree with that, man. Well said. Uh, I do want to shout out the 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 setting itself and the, uh, the penitentiary because I felt like it was a character in and of itself. And great set I, I you know i assume I've, I've heard that it was filmed uh, at a real location here in oregon and um the way that they walk through the set the way that that you know there's all these closing of gates the windows uh, all these different rooms all felt so real um I, it felt like a real place which whenever that that comes across on screen i think is always effective well since you bring it up it really was a real place um yeah so uh, Kirk Douglas, I don't know if you're familiar, but legendary Hollywood actor from sort of mm-hmm. the golden age of Hollywood, just recently I've passed away. I've heard his away. name. I he, yeah. he just recently passed. He um, had the rights to this story. Very, He was the first person to get the rights to this story. And okay. uh, he wanted to star in it. He thought that it was going to be amazing. He was really, really excited. But by the time it was actually ready to be developed into a film and he got around to it, he was too old for it. Um, so his son, Michael Douglas, who I know that you're familiar with, um, he picked up the reins and, and continued and became a producer for this movie. And so Michael Douglas went around trying to find the perfect location. He scouted various West, West Coast locations and chose Oregon State Hospital because the superintendent, Dr. Dean R. Brooks, MD, agreed to give the filmmakers unlimited access. And many of the extras in the background of these scenes are authentic institutionalized patients that were in this hospital. Wow. Okay, so where's this hospital located? Because I was also curious when they went out onto the uh, onto the ship, like where that was, just because, I don't know, maybe somewhere I could actually go. <laughs> so the fishing trip was in Depot Bay, which is in Oregon as well. I read that it's like the smallest harbor in the world. Um, wow. So, you know, when the rocks are really close together and the, the boats yeah. coming back through, it looked really small. That's that would be why, I guess. Yeah, it was a, it was a striking scene. Uh, maybe maybe curious. Like, I want I want to see where that bridge is at. Um, I'd love to go see that. I have to look up where that is exactly like in relation to where I'm at. Anyway, probably only matters to me, uh, Oregon resident. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this idea of having these actual patients in the film, um, a lot of the crew, it was said that cast and crew were interacting with at least two or three of the patients per day sort of you know they were full on part of the movie um and i just found that to be really like i mean that's just like what the story of this the whole point of this story is just like you know the treatment of the institutionalized um Mm -hmm. seeing seeing people become more confident and i actually read a story and you know i don't know the validity some of the stuff gets becomes mythos at some point it becomes myth but I read mm-hmm. that one of the patients had a severe stutter and then just like having such a like ha- feeling that it was such an important role 
being in this film like helped with the stutter apparently like uh st- the stutter started to to sort of recede a little bit i mean and, and like I, I just think that's like a cool legacy for this movie to to leave to just actually have been there you know they, you, they could have faked it they could have been on a sound stage they could have um you know not been around these these people but they were they embraced it and they i read that milos even even stayed at the stayed with them for like two weeks or something like that just observing trying to uh sort of really feel what it's like to be there and and see how what the goings on are like yeah that's incredible man um i'm reminded of uh billy bibbit uh i I guess the actor is brad doriff i don't know how to say his last name um someone i'm very familiar with i I was when i saw that face i was like i know this guy and it, it was a trip to see him that young uh same with danny devito christopher lloyd like all these guys that their faces are so iconic now and to see them this young uh was was tr- kind of trippy honestly yeah definitely um, i mean i mean just just for like y- you and i you you realize who who brad dorif plays in lord of the rings right right uh grima right yeah worm tongue he's also the doctor in deadwood which uh and i love him in that in that show like you know it's a great role so mm-hmm. uh absolutely man uh it was just cool to see all these actors and and uh i feel like obviously this movie put so many of them on the map right right I mean, it was Christopher Lloyd. We we got to talk about some of these actors now that we're doing it. Christopher Lloyd. This is his first. This is his first film ever. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because he was he was good in this, and uh, you know, it's it's funny though because I I could tell that they tried to cast char- you know, they tried to cast people who had a certain look to them, <laughs> mm-hmm. who looked like they could be in a mental institution. So everybody is, you know what I mean. For the most part, everybody's got some sort of like interesting quote-unquote appearance <laughs> I, I mean i think i read that milos uh went out of his way to sort of cast one star movie star and then and then surround him with lesser known actors so that they would sort mm-hmm. of like he would become the monolith like he would become the person that they all gravi- gravitated towards anyway um so just that idea but yeah let's just keep talking about scatman crothers in a movie with with jack Nicholson. yeah hey the old shining connection yeah yeah and this is before that this is before the shining yeah, so, yeah, I was surprised to see him. Uh, it was cool, happy to see him. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, another piece kind of clicks in, and I realize, oh, this guy had been, had had been in a movie before with Jack Nicholson, and I kind of understand the context more of like what people would have been thinking when they go see uh, The Shining. You know, maybe if they if they love this movie and they went and saw The Shining. Yeah, and then Danny DeVito. I mean, yeah, absolutely yeah. huge role for him. I thought he was unbelievable, almost unrecognizable, but yeah. but man, and just like I read that a lot of the actors were were so engrossed in their roles that they didn't come out of character a lot of the time. So just uh, just thinking of how how much all of these characters are, they're all embracing uh, this these roles, and and something a connection for me because I grew up a big fan of this kind of stuff in the '90s. Um, multiple people from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest play villains in my 90s batman films so like batman <laughs> has jack nicholson as the joker um, sure we have penguin from batman returns with danny devito, danny DeVito and yeah. so it's like i believe there's um there's also someone else who, who plays a villain and so it's just that connection for me is like you know that's putting historical context to things that would affect me eventually and you know tim right. burton's a big fan of this movie from 1975 one flew over the cuckoo's nest so mm-hmm. to purposely be casting someone like the joker from someone like uh Jack Nicholson is just I think it's it's just the effect of this movie and you know clearly other other Jack Nicholson roles as well yeah and that I was just going to get into Jack Nicholson's performance here and his sort of off the wall laughter and when he's first being walked in and the way he reacts to everything he's seeing and how he just commands the room so often um I, I couldn't help but think of the shining scene where he's meeting with the with the uh the guy to get the job for the overlook and comparing that to sort of the interview scene he has here with the doctor and uh, just how both times were so fascinated by this character he's portraying. And um, I don't know, it's a, it's a, he's a real talent, I think, and, and this shows why he is highly regarded. And that, uh, the laughter, I mean, it's got to be the laughter that turns him into the Joker and you see the laughter mm-hmm. in The Shining uh, with sure. with his character in The Shining. It's so... It's so like it's such an otherworldly laugh that you think you can't tell if he's serious or not, because sometimes yeah. it's clear that he's faking it. Sometimes it's le- legitimate laughter. Do we have any other any other modern actors like that who who can do sort of charisma so well, but pair it with 
danger and and like maybe psychosis you could almost say like that that is something that is so uniquely jack nicholson and that's one of the reasons why anytime someone tries to to sort of recapture some iconic role it's always going to struggle because that is such a unique blend that he brought to to these movies i think to think that no one else can do it would be it would definitely be like an oversight i'm not saying no one but but i know there are people like like someone who comes to mind for me is um Willem Dafoe, like Willem Dafoe, totally sure. t- encapsulates that sort of like manic. Yeah, I would say Willem Dafoe doesn't have as much charisma as Jack Nicholson, though. But we're we're maybe splitting hairs a little bit at this point. Yeah, but, you know, I think he can turn it on sometimes. Sure, sure, I agree yeah. with that. So if you want to, we can move into some plot here. I just have a super short synopsis that I'll read, and then we can start to break down some of our favorite scenes in in order as much as possible. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So when Randall Patrick Murphy gets transferred for evaluation from a prison farm to a mental institution, he assumes it will be a less restrictive environment. But the Martinet nurse ratchet runs the psychiatric ward with an iron fist, keeping her patients cowed through abuse, medication, and sessions of electroconvulsive therapy. The battle of wills between the rebellious McMurphy and the inflexible ratchet soon affects all the ward's patients. So very short synopsis there, but... That's fine, yeah. I mean, We've already talked about... Uh, what goes on in this pretty thoroughly in, the, in our book episodes because it's pretty faithful, you know, and that's one of the things I want to point to. Um, I, I think it's smart changes here or there while still maintaining uh, the spirit of the story. So one of the things that happens early on is uh, we get McMurphy coming in and, you know, the institution is all sort of everybody's sedated, you know, nobody's really, yeah. everybody's moving slowly and there's no there's no energy and then immediately... McMurphy represents that energy and that freedom mm-hmm. that we've been talking about comes in and and kisses that guard on the on the mouth as soon as he gets his shackles off and he starts laughing and and he's bringing that manic energy like I was talking about and um I was reading that the the kiss was supposed to go to the other guard and so the the authentic reaction of the guard being kissed <laughs> he thought it was supposed to be the other guard so it was like out okay. of out of nowhere <laughs> um and you know I guess it's like the I guess the idea behind it would be Milos Foreman or or Jack Nicholson, whoever improvised it. They were probably thinking like, let's show how unpredictable McMurphy is always going to be. You know what I mean? In showing that like this actor was kind of tricked into it, which we've talked about sometimes like what, you know, is it okay to trick uh, yeah. actors like is it is it is it kind of <laughs> is it even performance at that point or are you kind of like, yeah, but I, I think, think this one the, was probably fairly harmless. Right. But that's the kind of, um, you know debates that i think people get into because it's like let an actor act if you just want them to act Mm -hmm. but but those stories become legend a lot of the time too the stories of like this was improvised and this was real and that kind of thing right because we yeah we're under the impression that something that was improvised is for some reason you know more authentic and therefore more Mm -hmm. more and and it can Uh, be it can be sometimes it can be yeah anyway uh one of the point one of the scenes that stood out to me was the medicine um and and how I I couldn't believe, and, and I do believe it, but like I, from my like modern day standpoint, the idea that they would say take your meds, and he would say what are they, and they would say just take your meds, like like unwilling right. to tell him what they're giving him is such an affront, and like that was that was kind of my first like fuck fuck this place, you know, because mm-hmm. like y- you know if you're gonna give somebody medication, they absolutely should at least know what they are, um, and you know being forced in this way. Uh, yeah, it's just gross. And then, um, you know, this is something that builds on throughout the film. But this is kind of, to me, that was sort of the first big step in that direction. Uh, I, w- I do want to touch on also his meeting with the doctor, because the doctor is quite changed in this film. Um, the doctor is uh, is not on their side like he is in, in the book <laughs> or seems to be by the end. Um, and, in, and in fact, seems like another tool of the oppression, um, just in a, in a different way. Um, what, what did you think of the doctor's role in this movie? Yeah, I mean, very different. We talked about how he was under the thumb of Ratchet as well, even though he's the doctor in there and she's, she's the nurse. And in the movie, because of this interview, I think, you know, right away, he, he knows that McMurphy doesn't need to be in the institution. And he's like, we're going to keep you for evaluation as a formality to, to sort of do what they're supposed to do according to protocol. But he he's like okay you're gonna get out of here soon don't worry about it he's friendly with him they're talking about the fishing trip um and then you can tell when when he you know when they're all voting to see if he should leave or not he's the one who's like the most upset about it because he's like this guy doesn't need to be here and he knows that but he's also like being outvoted sort of 
you know, once mm. after the fishing trip. Well, that scene in particular, I think, is also notable because he says to Ratchet, you, uh, of all of us, um, are the most similar to him or something to that effect, right? Clo- um, closest to him, yeah. You're the, you're the closest to him or, you know, implying that she is like him in some way. And I, I wanted to actually ask you what your read on that was, like, because I don't remember that in the book. Um, why does he make a point to say that she she is, you know, more similar to him than than the others? For some reason, I felt like it was it, it wasn't necessarily similar. I thought she was. I thought that the point was he was saying you you deal with him on a day to day basis when all of us sort of just see him in evaluation now and again. So so I think the scene was um, he was saying something like surely someone here can can understand McMurphy and empathize with him and understand the the man and to where they could help him. And then he said like Nurse Ratched, you seem like you're the 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 closest to him what do you think um so so i guess i can see what you're saying but to me i read it more as him saying of anybody here you would be the one to understand him the most um which i don't know i just maybe i maybe that scene didn't mean that but um i just thought it was fascinating because i i i took it to to liken him to her in a way that is was surprising because we don't maybe there's a side to her we don't see a or also be like it's only a small change it takes to take someone from like McMurphy and turn them into a ratchet I guess was the implication I got from that like you give them authority and you know tweak something here or there and you can have you can turn somebody into that so I-, I don't know I just thought it was fascinating to say that those two characters are like one another in some way even though to me they seem like polar opposites um but it, you know, it also it also lends credence to that, like there's this way and there's that way, and there may be two sides of the same coin or something. Like that, maybe that's how they're joined together. I don't know. And I mean, that fits it fits along with the idea. I think that the story is getting at is like you know, the, the anybody. I think it's if you're in power, you kind of have ultimate power. If you're if you're in a position of power, you can make decisions that can that can affect other people to the point that they don't have the freedoms that you know you or I have. And I think that that's something that maybe. Even even the idea that McMurphy is influencing these these characters that are in the institution, maybe he's taking away their freedom by telling them how to be in some some mm-hmm. crazy way. So I could see like maybe there's a comparison to be drawn there. Maybe like like you said, pushed in the in, in a different direction. Maybe things end up different. Um, this does lead me to something though. I wanted to talk to you about Will Sampson, who played Bromden. He was a park ranger in Oregon, near where the movie was being filmed. He was selected Whoa, for the really? part. Yeah, he was selected for the part because he was the only Native American the casting department could find who matched the character's incredible size. Right. Okay. So. Wow, that's pretty amazing. He, they cast they cast someone who was a non actor for a role that I think really, I mean, the idea of being a non actor and and performing in the in the Bromden role is really fascinating to me because it's a role that requires more gestures and a lot of like, like, you know, he's stoic, but there is, emo- there is like acting going on in the face. Yeah. I was about to say, this didn't seem like someone who's, who doesn't know what they're doing to me. You know what I mean? So it seemed like maybe he has, he had a natural affinity for it because I thought he nailed this role. Absolutely. And I just think that that's something that to be noted, like what an amazing role for someone yeah, who's never. Incredible. Did he go on to act more after, after this movie? Yeah, he actually did go on to, to be in some movies here that I'm seeing. He was in The Outlaw Josie Wales. Um, he was in The White Buffalo. He's been in he's been in some movies, a lot of westerns it seems like The Poltergeist mm. 2 in 1986. So Okay, interesting cuz he looks kind of familiar and I was wondering if there's anything I could have seen him in. I probably have seen Poltergeist 2, although it would have been a long freaking time. Really a brilliant performance from from someone and like really carry like nearing the end of the movie, he it's not that he's the stoic person anymore he he shows yeah. the arc he shows the change in the character shows the happiness at the party and sort of seeing mcmurphy succeed and getting all everybody to have the party uh and then you know the the grief of actually killing mcmurphy and breaking out of and all of all of that like they put a lot on him for for someone who was a non-actor before this a couple of big things of note with this movie also is the fact that you know we've mentioned that it won a lot of oscars but it's the second of only three movies, the other two being It Happened One Night in 1934 and our recent project, our recent project The Silence of the Lambs in 1991. So it's, it's the second of only three movies to win every major Academy Award, Best Picture, Actor, Actress, Director, and Screenplay 
adapted or original. So completely swept wow. the Oscars. And, you know, that's two that we've done this year. I know that's pretty wild. Not not by plant now, but that's and hey, I mean, uh, what's what's what does it say that both of them were based off of books? I don't know. And also, we're yeah. fairly uh, fairly faithful adaptations. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Louise Fletcher uh, was was Mildred Ratchet, and uh, she won Best Actress for this, and I wow. think deservingly so. I mean, that was a. I mean, she had to be so. Uh, you know, serious and and really sell her Cold. as like an ominous pre- presence and like just like someone that you yeah. can't contend with and will beat you at every turn. Yeah, she the way she just stares people down is like it's so powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, and I read in later interviews she said that she she found ways to make her character human yet remain unsympathetic. Ultimately, deciding that Nurse Ratched actually did care about the patients and she felt she was doing what was the best for them, but was ultimately misguided and drunk on her power. She was so disturbed by her own performance that she couldn't watch the film for years. Wow. Yeah, and that that comes to a head in a scene that if we're talking about her performance, I have to I have to highlight. And and that's when Billy kills himself. And um or no, actually before, leading up to that. It's it's what sets him off. It's when she is is threatening him to tell his mother. And to me, that was her fatal moment because she that's when she demonstrates that she actually has her own interests in mind above the patients. She doesn't care because clearly in this moment, Billy, he's talking, he's talking better. He's got less of a stutter for whatever that's worth. And he is had this moment of um, freedom and and, and, and it, it seems to be good for him. And yet her reaction is to bring him back down to push the button she knows she can push to kind of like subjugate him or reassert her power. Um, and that was the moment of just like, fuck this, you know, fuck this woman because um, she's in it for herself and for her power trip and she's not in it for the patients at all. Um, and she loses all sympathy for me at that point, you know? Yeah. And I, there are points that I can see the struggle. I think she I think she mm-hmm. brought more to the character than was even in the book for, for myself. Just watching her performance, I did genuinely feel the pull in both directions. I felt like she right. wanted to do what was right and she couldn't contend with this person who was so off the off the wall and off. Like she couldn't control this person. And he was clearly doing sometimes things that weren't necessarily like in the in the clinical sense, what would be best considered for a patient. And so she was trying to do her job and he was trying to fight back. And so, mm-hmm. like, I felt like there was that subtlety there in, in her performance, and I did under, and did get it. But like you say, once we get to a certain point, she is supposed to be the villain, and she's supposed to be evil, and, and you know, we kind of see that. Yeah. Um, this this reminds me of uh, the director. Have something that that I was realizing and that I was reading about after the fact is the heavy use of reaction shots in this movie. There's um, right. It's just a lot of of like we talked about, sort of getting into the face of the character and letting the actor portray. Through, emo- through their face, the emotion, the eyes and the mouth, the way that they're moving them, um, letting the audience know what's going on through those reaction shots. So apparently in some group therapy scenes, there were 10 minutes of Jack Nicholson's reactions filmed, even if he had very little dialogue. So kind of just getting him acting in a scene for 10 minutes and getting the reaction so that they could cut those in. Um, I also read that the shot of Louise Fletcher looking icily at Nicholson after he returns from shock therapy you know, the moment he comes back mm-hmm. and he kind of acts like he's not all there and then and then snaps back and is being all himself again. Uh, apparently, her icy, her icy look, it was her irritated reaction to a piece of direction from, from Milos Foreman. <laughs> so because they were filming the reaction so much and they were just filming the actors in this way, I guess she, did, she didn't like the direction she was given in some way and like that sort of icy stare had had i don't know was apparently a reaction to something he said again maybe legend but (laughs) yeah that's funny yeah i mean i love how so many like possibly apocryphal stories pop up around you know these these classic films whenever we we cover uh like a kubrick film or something there's always a ton of these kind of stories um especially anything in this era right where there there's not a lot of records it's more just word of mouth that that has proliferated over time yeah, I mean, with this movie, there's a ton. I'd love to just run run through a couple other things. Like, yeah, hit me with it, man. I love this stuff. We talked about the awards. This was, at the time, it was the seventh highest grossing film of all time at the wow. time that it came out. So it was absolutely massive. In, wow, in addition damn. to the fact that it was critically successful, it was also financially successful. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we talked about Ken's Ke- Ken Kesey earlier in the episode, but I have something very interesting here to read. Ken Kesey was so upset by the finished film that he sued Michael Douglas and Saul Zantz for allegedly breaking a verbal agreement to not make wholesale changes from the novel. Quote, they took out the morality, they took out the combine, the conspiracy that is America. End quote. He sued for 5% of the film's gross along with 800000 for damages, equivalent to about $3.5 million in 2015. He eventually settled for 2.5% of the gross. Jeez. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wonder how much of that is is uh, just trying to get some money. I, I, I mean, we, we talked about this with Stephen King and The Shining. Um, sometimes I wonder if there's a little bit of um, anger over something being done so well and, and, and feeling like it's taking away from your, your vision, right? It's like one thing if someone makes a bad adaptation, then you can be like, oh, fuck, it was bad. Oh, well, I still have my book. Um, you know, I can point people towards that versus like a lot of people loving it so much, you know, maybe, maybe there's a different sort of, uh, anxiety there of like, no, my book is, is better and, and I need to fight for it. You know, otherwise it's going to be lost to history in in favor of this film. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I don't know if that's true for Ken Kesey in this situation or not, but you know, who knows? I do think that there's something to that. I think that there's Clearly, we are never going to know all the little secrets that go on behind the scenes, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of that in plenty of movies. Who knows if that's the case here, but it's always, you know, it's always a thought. Um, Well, I did uh, did see somewhere, maybe it was in that documentary we watched, or maybe somewhere else, where they were saying that uh, Kim Kesey did end up being happy this movie was made, and had later talked about it, you know, with praise. So, you know, maybe over time his opinion changed. I don't know. I'm sure it's, uh, yeah, like you said, maybe he's probably pretty close to the material, wanted to be adapted as, as close close and like get everything perfect. And then after, you know, taking some time to realize like it affected so many people, it brought so many people to the book, it really got the story out there. You know, what's funny too, is a lot of his gripes, I don't even agree with. It, I, I just think they yeah. made some of that stuff more subtle instead of this, uh, like, uh, you know, apparent. It, it's still there. A lot of that stuff is still there. I do have something else here from author Ken Kesey. He was so bitter about the way the filmmakers were, quote, butchering his story that he vowed never to watch the completed film and even sued the movie's producers, which I just spoke about, uh, because it wasn't shown from Chief Bromden's perspective as the novel is. Years later, he, he claimed to be lying in bed flipping through television channels when he settled onto a late night movie that looked sort of interesting, only to realize after a few minutes that it was his story. He then changed the channel. <laughs> well, I mean, like, if he never watched it, then what are we gonna? How much exactly, can we actually yeah. judge it? You know, that's 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 silly. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. There's uh, there's actually another legend behind this, and, and that's that Jack Nicholson and Milos Forman disagreed so much on this film that apparently Nicholson like disappeared for like two months or something like that. Uh, you know, the sort of a legend that I was reading about necess- not, isn't necessarily true. It was something maybe it was it was like a disagreement. They had stalled production for like two weeks is, is more mm-hmm. like it what I was reading. Okay. Um, but basically they had a falling out over Jack's character motivation during pre-production, leading to them speaking through the cinematographer throughout production. So they wouldn't speak directly oh, to wow. one another potentially. Um, Jack and Jack not contributing anything to the film's DVD special features, you know, down the line when they went back to sort of mm-hmm. make DVD features. Uh, Nicholson took issue with Foreman's suggestion that the hospital inmates would be an unruly bunch upon the initial arrival of McMurphy. Instead, Nicholson insisted that such disavowal of the medical staff's authority should only begin after the introduction of McMurphy into their lives and routines. We already kind of know where everything ended up, so it seems like Nick, if this actually was Nicholson's point that he wanted to get, it, it ended up in the edit, and that's that's what we get is them, you know, like I said, they're very sedated, and then he's the shot of energy that changes everything, mm-hmm. um, which I do think if that is if that was all Nicholson, power to him because that's definitely the better read on the whole situation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and what what was the other version? You know what I mean? It, was it was it them completely like shaking the shaking the bars from the get go or was it more just like there was a scene of of one particular thing that he that he didn't like you know so yeah. it's it's tough to say but you know yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's stuff's all fascinating especially I when think, it's a movie that like has has drama around it yet went on to have such success exactly you know? yeah I, and then i apparently jack Nicholson and milos foreman like when when people when the media or press would come on set they would act like they were friends for the media mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of one of those like, you know, they just seemingly were holding grudges, maybe. Um, But 
Like you said, it's very successful. In 1993, the movie was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Right. Wow. Yeah, which I think same for Silence of the Lambs we talked yes, about, right? <laughs> same exact thing. I think in the same uh, same year as well. So uh, with, really? that's like a lot of the extra stuff that I found. I think we should we should kind of finish up the plot in here and yeah, talk through some it, of man. these scenes. Uh, you know, there's the scene where uh, McMurphy gets on the shoulders of Bromden, climbs out, steals the bus. They go on a fishing trip, and I do right. think like the more I thought about it, that that fishing trip really is like a microcosm of of the movie. It's mm-hmm. like this idea of like them. It's really sh- showing that these characters although seen as different from society are just like you and me like they can they're they're happy when they're successful and they you know they're able to like really show their freedom in that moment and forget that that people feel differently about them because they're kind of unified in this they're a team all trying to catch fish and that scene is just is like i mean it's classic it's but it's very like bonkers and everybody's fighting and grabbing grabbing fishing rods and and let me catch this fish and uh mcmurphy's all over the place like shouting at everybody it was fun um i've always felt like when you're out on a boat like that's some of the times where i feel like a really strong connection to the earth like to the world Mm -hmm. and to nature and um there's just something something so primal especially about the pacific ocean i love that you know i felt like this scene captured that right like there's something there's something classic about man on a boat versus nature and, right. you know, that's what this fishing trip represents. And in a way, it sort of like takes all these people that have been judged by society to be unfit and, and um, to need to be put away. And it shows that if you put them in this classic scenario that they behave, you know, in ways that are that are um, understandable and, you know, we can empathize with and um, are human. And so yeah, in that I, way, like I, I felt this scene like really connected for me, at least. Yeah, I definitely agree that the, I like the idea of like, you know, it's such an it's such an uncharted territory. Like you're out there, you're so insignificant to the world. Like you're so yeah. vulnerable. You're so small. It's, it's, yeah, you're so small. All of that. And anytime you can get that perspective in in any sense, I feel like it's great. Especially in a movie like this, where it's kind of all about like society and what we've built, and it's kind of anti nature. And not not I'm not saying the story is anti nature, but it's like the idea of like society society well, is you something could say man-made. the asylum is right because the asylum is so unnatural it's so unnatural it's man-made versus like yeah being out in the ocean is very like you know cosmic mm-hmm. sure yeah so after that they you know they get in trouble for for going out on the boat there's yeah. there's the, all of the scenes that go on with that and eventually there's a scuffle because of this there's a fight or like the, right. the there and is that one so is that when he punches through the glass or is that there is this one, like the Bromden gets involved in two, and then they end up getting. This one, therapy. Bromden gets involved. I forget what exactly kicks off this fight. It might have been the the cigarette, the cigarette in the guy's pant leg. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there's a fight that breaks off and breaks out, and then they go get the the uh, electroshock therapy. And we got to talk about that scene because um, yeah. terrifying, because especially in the way it was presented, um, which was different than the novel. And that is that McMurphy didn't really know what was going on. And the way he was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you telling me to lay down? Why are, where are we going? What's going on in this room? Like, I think he knew something was happening, but it seemed like no one had told him mm-hmm. anything about it. Um, and it was just what he had noticed happened to the other character as they were, he was being wheeled out. When Cheswick gets pulled away and he's like not letting go of him, that's when like the terror can kind of set in on the character because nobody's talked yeah. about lobotomies and nobody's really talked about shock yeah. therapy. Nobody's yeah, nobody told him about this. Nobody talked in the book. It was called the shock shop, right? No one talked about that. Um, so when they're when they're doing it, and then they just it, it just seems like so cruel. You know what I mean? Like it really highlights that cruelty mm-hmm. in that moment. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I knew that I knew the scene was coming. Um, but yeah, it was effective, and just it happened so fast too which mm-hmm. I, I thought was notable. Like they didn't really like linger on it. It was, but, but yet it still was excruciating. I don't know. It was just really well-crafted. Him, seeing him writhing after yeah. the, the, the shock and just like, it yeah. was very like, I mean, that performance is amazing. And you know, he has moments like this to shine because it's just, I mean, it's like, you know, it's horrifying. It's so scary to think mm-hmm. like you might never be the same after something like that. And you know, w- w- the idea of somebody who doesn't have your best interest in mind when they're doing it is, is pretty terrifying. Well, um, just doing it, just doing it at a punishment. It, it's yeah. 
awful. And uh, there's a bunch of scenes that I that I'd like to get get more into, but I want to rapid fire a couple. The the basketball scene, I think, getting Bromden involved and and then um, getting to see sort of him develop in that way and seeing really all of them together playing basketball and even yeah, even absolutely. when when um, McMurphy's like up on the up on uh, the guy's shoulders early on. Yeah, I know. I kept I, I can't believe that guy could hold him up like that. Yeah, did not seem like he would be able to. Strong. He's tired, but he's strong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I did kind of miss his his monologue. That character with the "I'm tired." He gives a really great monologue in the book that yeah. um, I was kind of waiting for in the, in the film and never came to be. We get a hint um, at like yeah. him saying more than just "I'm tired," but it's really more yeah. just background stuff. I love the scene of of McMurphy trying to pick up the world water fountain console thing for the first mm-hmm, time, sure. and I love it when he sprays them when they're playing Monopoly. Um, there's a there's a yeah, great it's scene. like zapping them out of it, right? Like you know, yeah, they're all fighting. Up. But ultimately, we get to the scene where McMurphy sneaks the two women into the into yeah. the ward and bribes uh, Scatman, Scatman Crothers, <laughs> or the orderly, yeah. I think, Turkle, Turkle, or Turkle, like yeah, yeah. So he bribes him with the money and the women and the booze, and then eventually, it just it's chaos. But that's yeah. that that party scene is really the culmination of everything. It's like they're f- fully free in that night. They're free to be themselves and free right. to have a good time nobody no supervision and i think that you know i think that implies that a lot of them after the movie ends are going to leave the ward and have found some new confidence in certain ways because we don't we right. get the we get that actually being stated in the book but it's sort of implied in the movie right that's true yeah we don't actually see it but we do know that so many of them are not committed they're there voluntarily so yeah we, we i guess you could you could read into it that they that they would be likely to leave all right, so let's talk about when everything's found out and just the tension of that scene when everybody's right. waking up um, and then ultimately the ultimately the attack on, on Ratched. Yeah, so I want to highlight first Billy, Billy Bibbit and, and that performance. I thought he was really likable. You know, I, th- I think that character works really well in a way that maybe even better than the book. Um, I, I felt protective of him. I felt like I wanted to cheer for him and then I, I was hurt when he kills himself and right. uh, that all is effective in showing mcmurphy's reaction all right because that directly leads to him trying to strangle nurse ratchet which again uh uncomplicated by sexual assault that we get in the book um, right it's still assault which isn't is it's assault but it's yeah which isn't a good thing to do yeah but it makes so much more sense and I, this scene works so much better for me in the movie one of the yeah. one of the things that like really puts the movie above the book, in my opinion, is the way this scene plays out. Yeah, I mean, overall, I knew you were going to feel that way. Just like remembering as we read the book, wanting like excited to cover this. It's just it's just so much more. You know, he still attacks a woman. He still attacks right. someone in general, which right. is again, it's a great character. It's not. I'm not saying that he's a good person, even though he does this stuff. Or he's a bad right, person. right. But she directly led to to him to Billy killing himself. Right. Through so her like, we understand we understand where he's coming from. Whereas I felt like the the whole, you know, you know, castration and all the stuff that they kept talking about how they were being emasculated by her and all that stuff and then ultimately ripping her dress off and like, you know, exposing her and sexually assaulting her, I feel like just has so much more baggage than attacking someone for for ultimately like a character losing it and attacking someone out of rage. Yeah. Well, because he's attacking her for her power trip and for her you know, her uh abuse of authority he's not attacking her for daring to do it while being a woman right <laughs> which exactly. which is uh the gross bit that is that is missing in the movie and i'm i'm happy it is yeah so we get the scene that shows all of all of the patients are still in the hospital which is a change when ratchet comes back the the hospital right. a lot of them have left when she was when she was kind of gone because of her injury mm-hmm. uh and then we see we get the scene of McMurphy being led back and and then uh Bromden goes over and sees his scars from the lobotomy and and smothers him and and throws has that triumphant moment where he carries that massive thing and throws it through the window and yeah. runs out leaving the window open for any of the others to escape seemingly if they wanted to as well leading mm-hmm. the way I don't know if they will but you know again right. interpretation well and I think that's 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 the you know that's the metaphor right like you know, the, Bromden is inspired by McMurphy's sacrifice, and um, much like a martyr, you know, going down, he he creates a movement, and that movement is spearheaded by Bromden, who smashes out and escapes. And then, yeah, the open question is uh, for for the rest of the inmates, and I guess for the audience, do we follow him out? Do we do we shake free of our of our uh, oppression and and be truly free? 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's the question the movie's asking you uh, as an audience member. And uh, yeah, it's I think it's effective. And I think, you know, quintessentially American, <laughs> in mm-hmm. my opinion. I, I do have another scene that really made me smile that I didn't mention that I'll regret not talking about. And that's the okay. scene where McMurphy and Bromden are, are sitting together right before the shock therapy. And it's when Bromden reveals that he can speak and they kind of talk and they're laughing together. And he's just like, you got all these motherfuckers. Uh, you, <laughs> yeah. got, you got them all tricked and all these yeah. things that he's saying. Like, I, I just I, I, that that scene always, you know, it's that it's the calm before the storm. We get that moment of them like laughing together, the juicy fruit. And then he eventually goes in to spit out your gum and then gets shocked. And the spitting out the gum is important, too, because it's like we just had that amazing scene with the juicy fruit. Spit out your gum. And then he gets shocked. Yeah. It's just like. You know, I just think the juxtaposition between the two scenes is powerful as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, man. Uh, yeah, a lot of great scenes, uh, a lot of great performances. I am very happy I saw this movie now. Uh, happy I read the book. You know, honestly, I feel like I, I understand this whole project um, really well now. So thank you to everybody who voted for it. I hope hopefully you enjoyed the coverage. Um, hopefully we represented as many different uh, viewpoints as we as we can, uh, but ultimately, you know, which is going to be what what our reactions were. Um, that being said, we found the movie to be the superior version. It distilled all of the uh, points from the book, and I think made them in a more effective way. Um, I think it went through uh, the, the, this amazing filmmaker's mind, and he was able to to create something iconic. So. Um, you know, props to him, and yeah, easily, easily movie for me on this one. Yeah, movie all the way. I don't, no ex- explanation needed after that. Um, <laughs> I agree. Just okay. the better, the better version, and and uh, props to Milos Foreman, and and I mean everybody. All the performances were amazing. I just thought the casting was incredible. The set design, yeah. everything was believable, and you know, it's it will stand the test of time. This is always going to be a universal movie. I think. I think anyone Absolutely. can watch this. And, and pull a lot from it and any any like like Milo said like even even from his background it's it's relevant it's it's the the idea of oppression and and standing up to it and standing up for your freedom and I think everybody everybody wants that and deserves it absolutely uh, so let's announce our next project uh, since we had that voted on another iconic movie that will stand the test of time <laughs> I don't know uh, total recall <laughs> yeah um, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, adapted from a Philip K Dick short story that one our poll we had up we had a bunch of like fun sort of 80s early 90s projects we wanted to do something that was a little bit silly but had some depth to it too um and so we put a few different options up there that's in the council of inklings on facebook if you want to join that see where we post these polls um that one are for our next project so look for that next week we will be tackling both in a combo episode the short story and the film and we wanted to give a shout out to one of our patrons harry c relatively new patron we really appreciate your support and and all of our patrons uh, thank you for helping us continue this and and grow grow our podcast and reinvest in our equipment and make sure that you, that we uh, can continue to to make this as large as it can get and meet as many people as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, go to patreon.com slash ink to film to see uh, what we're offering on there, including that bonus episode we referred to early on, uh, which was on The Last Man on Earth, uh, starring Vincent Price, uh, old black and white film that we had a, a lot of fun discussing, I think. Yeah, it was a fun discussion for sure. The we just a second ago, Luke mentioned the Council of Inklings, where this was this project came from a poll, and then our our upcoming project, Total Recall, was also was also from a poll. Uh, if you would like to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film, but specifically the Council of Inklings is a Facebook group that you can join, and we post polls for upcoming projects. We post news any sort of adaptation things we see that we think uh could potentially be projects in the future or just interest people who like this podcast absolutely and if you enjoyed this episode uh, or any of our coverage of one flew over the cuckoo's nest please let us know in the form of a rating and review uh we do read those i often share them on social media when i find ones especially ones that are complimentary um and (laughs) you know we appreciate it it's a good way to get the word out uh on the podcast so absolutely anywhere you can leave a review or um please do so And thank you to Nicholas Drew Day for the use of our intro and outro music. Absolutely, man. So are you ready to get into some Arnold next week? Uh, I'm excited. I'm wondering, uh, how many Arnold impressions do you think we're going to do? Like, is is, are we going to do any? Are we going to do 10? Where are we at? Where's the the middle range? 
I don't know. I, I think we're going to, there, there will be some, I, I have a yeah. feeling, but, um, I guess stay tuned. <laughs> I'm going to have to practice mine for sure. Cause I don't think <laughs> yeah. I'm a great impressionist, but yeah, you know what I mean? I, I feel like I don't want to do it, but then I also feel like I'm going to watch this movie and it's going to make me want to do an Arnold impression. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, this is one that, that I, I, I'm excited to get to because I saw it, I think when I was a little kid and, and, you know, maybe I didn't even watch the whole thing. So like, and I know it's an iconic one, so I'm in. I'm I'm excited to watch it. I think it'll be a nice little surprise. Like I think I I, I remember it's a fun movie. Like I think mm. all things considered, it's a fun '80s movie. So I'm I'm looking forward cool. to it. Me too, man. All right, we hope you join us next week for that. Uh, and for more on the horizon, we're we're back every week. So so make sure to subscribe. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's it for now. And until next time, thanks for listening. Mm.